For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? There's so much to celebrate, and I want to begin by celebrating Rose Apuzo. Rose was responsible uh, for putting me in touch with Mark Saltarelli, who is our very special guest tonight, and I cannot wait to get him out here. But I've got a few things I want to talk about before I do. I also am celebrating our three sponsors tonight, uh, Aaron Caleb, uh, Deborah Stone, and Kurt Peterson. Check them out, look them up, Google them, and if you get a chance, go and see them live, wherever they are. I want to talk a little bit about this date in 1974. 1974 was a pivotal year in my life. I was 13 years old. I was living in Conway, South Carolina. Uh, it was a Thursday on this date. I looked it up. Uh, so uh, I was watching, uh, chances are, the Waltons that night. And if I had done my homework, and I knew that I had, uh, my parents would let me watch the CBS thir uh, Monday night movie, which would follow that, a uh, uh, Thursday night movie. It was on a Thursday. Uh, that was the year that That's Entertainment came out, and a nostalgia craze uh, took over the country. Uh, it was also uh, the year that I made up my mind, those of you who have seen my uh, one-man show, uh, The Magic of Believing, that was the year that I made up my mind that I was going to go to New York and that I was going to pursue a career as an actor. Now, what was going on in New York at that time was the beginnings of the disco era and Studio 54, but on the West Coast, there was Studio One. And Studio One opened in 1974, and it survived until 2019, one of the longest running discos ever. Uh, but Mark Saltarelli has devoted his time lately uh, to this incredible documentary. I've been watching some clips that I have been privy enough to see, some that you will see tonight. Some very dear friends of mine are also in this film, so I can't wait to see it. So come with me, uh, 1974, uh, chances are, those of you who are a little bit older than 13-year-old uh, me, uh, I'm sure you weren't at home watching the Waltons. Uh, chances are, if you were on the West Coast near West Hollywood, this was the place to be. Take a look. Okay, guys. Used to be paradise. It was an explosion, a complete immersion. I never thought there would be a place for me to be myself. Anybody who tells you that they were there in the 70s and remembers it wasn't there. You were in the middle of a group of the most beautiful men you'd ever seen. You could feel the energy move throughout the whole room. When you crossed over into the threshold of the dance floor was a kind of alternative reality. It was really my entrance into life. I was wide-eyed. It was Hollywood. There were hundreds of people, everybody who was anybody, especially in the gay community, showed up. This is a film about us. Studio One was always about the back lot. It was the major place to be. Hooray for Hollywood! 
And all of a sudden, I look over and I see Cary Grant walk through the doors. Oh my God, it's Cary Grant. I remember seeing Betty Davis. To see Rock Hudson, I thought, wow, this whole place was packed with celebrities. The show that we've been doing in New York, we did it here at the back lot. Something's going to happen when you played here. Women had to have three pieces of ID. Open-toed shoes were not allowed. No open-toed shoes. There was discrimination against blacks. Protest began almost immediately. These protests were broad range. And almost any given time, there was one or two people standing outside. People just were slipping away. And I was singing at all these memorial services. There was an extra layer of security. We didn't know whether they had been chaos was going to ensue. The fact that they made the decision to bring me with them the night of the fundraiser, if something's going to happen and the place is going to get blown up, at least we're all there together. They're talking about demolishing the whole thing. All these years. As soon as it went public, we started to hear from folks. What do you mean you're tearing it down? They're going to destroy the building. It's going to be history. They won't be around anymore. In the 70s, we were behind closed doors, no windows, dark alleys, a secret society. I'm ready for a bottle to come at us any second now. But that doesn't happen anymore. Star Search would call us up and say, could you try putting this person in your show tonight? And this big dream was all just starting to fizzle. There are three things that change everything. Plague, famine, or war. We were experiencing plague. He used to always say to me, don't tell me there's not a war on. I've only loved three people in my life, and he was one of them. Love this shot. It really captured him. I see all of these people that I used to dance with at the clubs who are now deceased. This is 30 years later, and I still get very emotional about it. This night had to happen. You cannot overstate the historical impact of this building. If these walls could talk. West Hollywood lost 10,000 people, and their spirits are still here because this was the place where they were happiest. God bless Studio One forever. And here he is, Mark Saltarelli. A toast to you. I mean, it, you. you know, already this is, so many of my friends are in that uh, short uh, trailer. Uh, I can't imagine uh, the rest of the film. And oh, as yeah. I said in my introduction, thank you for sharing clips with me. Uh, it, you are, I mean, first of all, there's no way that you were at this club. Oh, I absolutely was. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I went to the University of Illinois in 1980, 82. And then what was my dream, my entire childhood living in Peoria was to come out here to Los Angeles. And, uh, and so I, I managed to do that. And I went, I finished my film degree at Loyola Marymount, a good Catholic boy. And then um, every weekend I would go over to West Hollywood and not every weekend, but, you know, uh, check out Studio One. And um, it was a bit intimidating for me, I must admit. I was a lot more shy than I am now back then. But uh, but I just enjoyed kind of watching the show. It was quite a show. 
going on. Um, but, you know, I never knew half of the history of that place until I really started working on this film. And I, I think it will be surprising, really, to everybody who, who watches it. I mean, it, it was the place that inspired Studio 54. Uh, Halston and Steve Rebell were friends of Scott Forbes, who was the founder of Studio One. And, and they came and they saw it and they said, you know, let's do something like this in New York. Of course, you know, that lasted three years. Studio One lasted 19 years. Right. And Studio One was for gay men. <laughs> Scott Forbes tried to keep the women out and he didn't really like having people of color. But, you know, it was a different era. Um, and that's part of the film as well. So, But wasn't it true that as he was trying to keep a lot of the Black uh, clientele out, uh, Black artists were performing there? Yes. Yeah, Sylvester, of course. Um, you know, if you were famous enough, it's fine, right? I mean, that's the way it is everywhere back that, then. Well, that's uh, the, you know, Sammy there, Davis Jr. There's also a new documentary that's just coming out about Louis Armstrong and mm. uh, the prejudice that he experienced throughout his entire career, which is, I mean, we know that that was all going on, but this film is really shedding a light on it on a level that has never been shed on that career. I know that Pro Bailey, when she was touring with Hello Dolly, when she was in Philadelphia, uh, most hotels would not allow her to stay in the hotel. And she yeah, was leaving this company. It's hard to believe. You know, we're kind of regressing backwards now, it seems. Uh, but uh, the future, who knows what the future will hold. Um, but, you know, Scott was caught, you know, there was a boycott, uh, a major boycott. People were picketing outside the place. Um, you know, it was headline news in the LA Times. Uh, and by the 80s, Scott sort of changed, you know, healed himself, I guess. Um, and it wasn't quite as restrictive. Well, there's so much more to you than this film, which we're going to get back to in just a moment. Um, I began my shows, as I've done in the past, uh, by asking uh, for a photograph of you as a five-year-old. And the reason that I asked for a five-year-old's uh, photograph is to me, the five-year-old is the purest self. It's before life begins to tell you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. Uh, teachers start telling you who you should be or who you shouldn't be. And this photograph, I mean, I just look at this and just uh, look, the, the, just that face, you know. So what, can, I mean, I know from what you told me in the description of this photo, but if you can tell everyone watching this and just amazing you and your brother, what you were doing at such an early age. Yeah. Um, well, my father is, uh, was a professor um, and he was still uh, getting his master's degree. And we lived in Rome for a couple of years uh, between the ages of, I guess, five and seven. And my mother, um, I guess you would call her a, a, a stage mom. Anyway, uh, she hooked us up and got us an agent and we started doing commercials. Uh, I was thrilled. It was a little bit of a baby Jane situation, maybe, because they wanted me more than my brother, but we won't get into that. Uh, but we... Uh, you didn't get into a car with him or... No, we didn't do all that. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but those are my first, literally my first memories of being, you know, at Chinichita with the hot lights and... One of them, I ran in, uh, it was like a, a, a basement with, with a washing machine. I ran in and my mother picked me up and put me on the, the washing machine and ripped my shirt off. And 
uh, and I had to do it like 20 times. Uh, another one wasn't such a good memory. Uh, we were by a fountain and a piazza and uh, it was uh, for Vic's cough drops and um, I was holding a balloon and I sneezed and the balloon would go up in the air. So apparently I was doing something wrong because the guy holding all the balloons for the multiple takes ran out. <laughs> Oh my! I was screwing up all these takes, but anyway. But the um, thing that it, you know that I, I really want to get to is yeah. that you did. You also uh, appeared with Gina Lola Bridget. I, yeah, that was like the first one. I have no memory of that one. She powdered my butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's and my that, my favorite, folks, you know. is how you get into show business. There you go. <laughs> but I love this photograph is also because this photograph to me uh, symbolizes I'm going to assume late 60s or mm -hmm. early 70s you know because the large tv set we all had this a tv set was a piece of furniture uh yeah. in our households um even though you were doing commercials and everything uh you said that being under the lights and everything you were drawn into that world uh what was it specifically that was pulling you in and what specifically did you want to do in that world well, I could get into the therapy part, but let's not okay. go there. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, originally I wanted to be an actor. Yeah, I wanted to be a star. And then I kind of realized, yeah, I'm probably not going to be able to do that. Uh, I did do some plays in high school or whatever, but but I, I fell in love with filmmaking. Um, I, I didn't ever really picture it as, as a, a legitimate career path until I went to college and uh, at the U of I in Urbana-Champaign and uh, I found this film class and, and I, I started seeing, you know, classic films and understanding film on a deeper level. And it was like a whole world just opened up to me that I didn't even realize was there. And, uh, and I knew that's where I wanted to go. Originally, I was, my plan was to be a broadcast journalist, you know, and be a news guy and that kind of thing. But I thought, you know, there are no gay people who are anchors or, Obviously now, just about everyone. Well, well everybody gay, now. So it might have been, <laughs> might have been okay. But Come to I, New York, Mark. <laughs> but at that time, you, you just didn't think there were any. Right. Um, but, you know, it's very similar, you know, broadcasting and putting together stories and uh, storytelling. That's always been what I wanted to do. And, um, and eventually I, I moved and finished my film school here at Loyola. And uh, my grandma helped me. And Loyola had the, the most incredibly beautiful boys everywhere. It was like, <laughs> compared to Peoria, it was like eye-opening. And um, yeah, that's where my life went. And I worked uh, in uh, for Canon Films after graduating from school uh, on a lot of really low-budget films. Well, medium to low-budget. Uh, and just kept, kept working on it in various capacities, post-production, um, and for the last 25 years, I've sort of been my own independent filmmaking Absolutely. production company, uh, made about seven uh, shorts that have been in festivals everywhere uh, and some documentaries. And I do a lot of um, corporate and uh, videos, you know, to make some money because, you know, obviously passion projects means no, not much money usually. <laughs> uh, so, um and three years ago, so this this thing came along and uh, changed my life in a, a lot of ways. Well, I want to you know go back for a moment. You've done both narrative films and you've done documentaries. I'm a huge documentary film fan. 
Um, I, I when I'm searching for films, documentaries, uh, when I go to Netflix or Amazon, I always look to see if there are any new documentaries out there. Uh, it's just a genre that I'm crazy about. I love the history. I love learning about it. Uh, what is it about uh, documentary films that pulls you in? Well, for, for me, um, you know, a documentary is, is a narrative. You know, it should be called, it, it shouldn't be called uh, narrative filmmaking and it should mm -hmm. be just all narrative. It's just using real people and real events, but you have to kind of structure it as if it's a story being told, just like a, a cinematic story. Uh, that's how I approach it. Um, and it, it's just, uh, it's about real people and about real things. And uh, if, it, if it's produced properly, then, then you feel like you're watching a movie and heightened. Um, and, and it was just a joy. I, 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 my kind of primer, I guess, for this, I, I did a short documentary for Michael Childers. You know Michael? Oh, yes, of course. Yep. Um, I've been friends with Michael uh, for 30 years, possibly. I met my husband at uh, his and John Schlesinger's house up on the top of the world. Um, and I've been working with him on his one night only shows every year and doing all kinds of things. And he wanted to make a documentary uh, to go with a, a museum exhibition on, on Warhol. And so he asked if I would do that. And he got all of his friends from the Warhol days like uh, Ed Bruchet, the artist, and Cherry Vanilla, and, and all of these incredible people who knew Andy Warhol personally. And it's, it's just a simple short film, uh, but we did win Best Short Documentary at the Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival. It's a really different look uh, at Warhol from a, kind of a nicer perspective of people who loved him, I guess well, I would say. You know, there are a few people that Clifford Bell, uh, who is a friend, uh, said to say hello to you. Uh, Frank Coletti, who is watching, uh, they send hey, their love. Uh, so, uh, and also um, a dear friend of mine, who is actually a neighbor of mine, believe it or not, um, sent a message that I'm going to share with you. So here she okay. is. Hey guys, it's Celeste. Happy day. I know you're having a good time with Richard. He does a great job and a great service to our community in learning the history of people. And that's what the Studio One uh, documentaries about also, which I absolutely loved being a part of. You uh, brought me down memory lane and uh, I had a fantastic time. I wish you all the best. And I don't know if you remember this. However, we were standing there with Gary Lloyd, uh, myself and you, you and myself, and my pants fell down. Hello. And she leaves us hanging with that. Uh, what happened? I don't. I, I don't think I was there. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love her. Um, oh, I love so her so much. Ago, uh, a year ago, like this week, we were in New York for a week, uh, and that's when we interviewed Cheetah, Celeste, and Julie Bud. Oh. Julie Bud, who I love. Uh, she's actually the only backlot show I ever saw. Uh, she was a good friend of my friend, Steve Zappa, who passed away from AIDS. Uh, and so that was quite, uh, yeah, just, oh, and Felipe Rose of Village People. Yes. Um, and Brian Lane Green. And so we got all of the New York people uh, in that week. And um, and that just really, you know, finished the film. Uh, I, I knew that we could not make this film without Cheetah and my God, I was just so thrilled when I found out from Rosie, her assistant, uh, 
mm-hmm. that when she heard about it, that she was just so excited because she wanted to tell her story. She is the reason that the backlot is the back was the backlot. I mean, she, as you'll see in the clip, mm-hmm. uh, she made it. And um, well, let's show that clip. And I mean, we have the clip. And what uh, you want to maybe just set it up um, for people who don't know, mm-hmm. you know, well, I guess the trailer said it, but yeah, it was a, it was a disco in this huge factory building that was actually a camera factory that made the cameras that made the film Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's got a gay history. I mean, Wizard of Oz camera, basically. Uh, and then it became the factory uh, with uh, that was owned by uh, Peter Lawford and um, Paul Newman and mm-hmm. somebody else. Anyway, and, and then it became Studio One in 1974. So it was this huge, ugly factory uh, with on one side was the disco entrance and on the other side was the backlot theater. And in the middle of the parking lot, there were these stairs uh, where all of the celebrities would enter. Uh, The stairs are a really important part of our film, uh, both because that's what people remember. You know, anybody who visited Los Angeles, it was gay or not, remembers going up those stairs and... um, when you see the film, you'll see how powerful uh, the, the meaning of those stairs are. But anyway, uh, uh, originally it was just a disco, and Scott Forbes, who was the founder, uh, was this amazing guy in, in so many ways, uh, who, who isn't with us anymore. Um, he, he saw that the other area was kind of dead, nobody was going there, so he wanted to you know make some money with it. And they decided to start a showroom, and it really wasn't going anywhere until Bob Fuzzy had a heart attack, and that's where this clip takes us. Yes, well, uh, we're gonna show this clip now. Here it is, Gina Rivera. When I was in Chicago with Gwen Verdon, Bob Fosse created, I think, a piece of genius work. Well, we were all called in on this specific date. Well, we found out then and there that Bobby had just had a heart attack. Now, what do you do? Most of all, is Bobby going to be all right? Everybody was out of work on Chicago for about three months. Eliza decided that it would be a good time for Cheetah to put a nightclub act together. Eliza was married to Jack Haley at the time. Jack and Eliza said, why don't we do a nightclub act? And I said, I can't do a nightclub act. I I don't have one, first of all. Second of all, there are people out there, and I have to play me? I don't even know who me is. She and John Kander and Fred Ebb put this act together. They did it in New York. And then they said, it's got to be seen by people in L.A. So Liza Minnelli and Vince Minnelli booked a room for Cheetah Rivera to come to West Hollywood. When I got out of California, it was this great dance hall. And guys were dancing with guys. We came through the dance hall hearing that music and that thumping and that joy. You can't walk through. You have to boogie. Liza and Jack said, let's invite a lot of celebrities. Well, you name it, Marishnikov, anybody that you can think of. But that particular performance, knowing that Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire and all of these great stars were coming through this dance hall, just made me laugh and I, I adored it. I thought the worlds were combining and it was a very exciting time. And all that jazz. The most appreciative audiences. I'm only goosebumps. The, the heart was so connected 
to my run there. Amazing. And I'm sure you've seen her in concert. Yeah. Oh, just, and still going strong. And, uh, and the most wonderful, real, generous, sweet person. Um, I mean, I had this idea that's not in that clip of, of filming her in front of the, the uh, I forget what theater, uh, 48th Street Theater, where Hamilton is now, where Chicago mm -hmm. was. Uh, and she said, sure, let's go. So there's a scene of her at the stage door talking, and, um, and it just so happened that the door opened and it was the same doorman who was on it during the Chicago days. It was like Hawkeye. I mean, it was like, you know, Norman Desmond. <laughs> I tried to fit in the movie. I couldn't really fit that in. But anyway, um, and, and she, another one of my ideas is, would you mind doing a few Fosse poses? And she did it. Uh, well, I'm, that's Cheetah. She, she, you know, she's just amazing, was, and she's got her autobiography coming out. So, uh, oh yeah, I know. Uh, make a great documentary. Although PBS has done a documentary, yeah. But Mark, you could take it even further. I know you could. I know this could be a series. We <laughs> had to really cut it down, you know, to make it around ninety minutes. Uh, but I, I lost a lot of stuff that maybe if it becomes a series, we'll we'll create episodes out of the stuff that couldn't fit into this uh, ninety minute frame. So I want to talk about the narrative of this film. I mm -hmm. uh, I want to go back uh, when let's go back to you first of all. That first night that you walked into this place, um, by the time I got to New York and Studio Fifty Four was starting to close down, I never made it to Studio Fifty Four, and it's one of the biggest regrets of my life that I never mm -hmm. experienced what that was like. You got a chance to experience this, and you saw it uh, in its heyday. Uh, but going into this place the first time, uh, you met, you touched upon this earlier. Um, was there a lot of nerves about you walking in, and did you go in alone or with you with friends, or what was that experience like that first night for you? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I was a college student, so I didn't yet have a lot of gay friends. Uh, so I did go alone. Uh, I, later on, I, I went with some friends, but uh, but it was it was nerve wracking uh, just because it's it was like an assault of uh, <laughs> the senses, and you know, a thousand guys shirtless, you know, not all of them, but shirtless, uh, and I just didn't have the nerve to go and jump in with them, but. God, it was fun to just watch. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, talking about homophobia, when I was at the U of I in, in Urbana, um, I waited until summer school to go to the first gay bar because my father and my brother weren't going to be in town. I was so afraid that they would be, of course, driving by and see me walk in. So I had to wait until I went to summer school just for that purpose to come out, basically. I remember uh, there's a, a club in New York, you may know it, called The Monster. And mm -hmm. that was one of the first, it was a piano bar. Uh, and it was, it, that was the first gay bar that I ever went in. And uh, I was in there singing my heart out one night. And then this guy across the room is trying to outsing me. And then mm -hmm. I realized he was one of my friends from my ho hometown in South Carolina. And my first thought was, oh my God, he's seeing me in a gay bar. And then I went, wait a minute. He's here too. <laughs> yeah, right. So, and you know, so that you know, that was that. But um, so, 
after going in that first time, um, right. you did mention that this became almost, was it almost like a ritual of you going back over and over again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it wasn't every every single weekend, but uh, sure, it was, you know, at least once a month I would go. Um, and I had a boyfriend later in, in the 80s. Uh, I don't know if I should say that. But uh, Scott Forbes liked the kind of guys that I had um, a boyfriend, uh, mm -hmm. younger, blonde. And um, anyway, he met Scott and then he dumped me. So I kind of had a... a aversion to going there after that happened. Wow. Well, I could understand and, that. And this movie is not, I'm not trying to trash Scott Forbes because of that, trust me. It's just, <laughs> it's just a Obviously you're making this homage. To We're it. not trashy, yeah, so, it's an homage. Um, how did the, the film come about? Was this uh, something that was always in the back of your mind that you wanted to do? Or did someone approach you and say, this is something I'd like you to take on? Yep, not at all in the back of my mind. Um, in my mind, Studio One was was great, but I thought it was, I did had no idea what happened all those years before I went there. Um, but Clifford Bell, who you mentioned, who yeah. uh, who I work with, I film a lot of his his shows. Um, I sort Project of have, Angel Food, I just want to get that Angel out there. Food, he got uh, yeah, involved in that as well. Uh, he does The Barber Show, I'm sure you've heard of that, which was yes. fabulous uh, last year. Um, and you know, I became kind of the uh, the cabaret videographer for a while. Not by I mean, it just happened. Anyway, that's what I was doing for a while, uh, and it was it was fun. But anyway, Clifford uh, introduced me to Lloyd Coleman, who was a, a producer of Monday Night Live in the '80s with his partner uh, Gary Steinberg, and Lloyd was working. You know the the uh, the city, the building was set to be demolished. And in order for the developer to get permission to build this huge development called Robertson Lane, uh, you know, they had to bring it to the, to the community. And the community kind of rose up, this lost generation of gay men who came of age, you know, it was a place where they could feel safe. Mm -hmm. in this world that, you know, it wasn't safe, especially in the early days. I mean, you know, it was just uh, the police uh, harassment was everywhere. Um, before Studio One, gay bars were shuttered. They, you know, they weren't open. Uh, Studio One is known as the first open, open bar or open club where people stood proudly outside and waited in line. They had bottles thrown at them occasionally, you know, cars passed and they were yelled faggot or whatever but they that was the first time that it, that they weren't like sneaking in the back door and so to scott's credit that that was what uh what he really started um so where was i, I was uh, no about how the project came about the project came about yes yeah, so clifford introduced me to lloyd and gary and uh lloyd had been working with the developer and going to various meetings, and he, he was planning to have a reunion of the back lot and Studio One, this great party that that ended up ha happening on uh, in 2019, November 19th. It's, it's basically the third act of our movie is mm -hmm. everybody coming back and recreating, you know, Studio One and the back lot the way it was back in the old days. Um, and and he said he's got this wonderful project. Uh, and I said, well, let's talk about it. Let's think about it. And, and then I just started researching 
um, there were these two lesbians, uh, Kate and Chrissy, who really wanted to save the building. And they, they had the Save the Factory website. And, uh, and they, they researched it and, and applied for a, a historical you know, preservation status. And if you go online, there's like you know, 120 pages of detailed history. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember sitting there reading this, and it was like reading, you know, reading a movie or reading a book, a great book. And it's like, I, I never knew all of this, you know, all of the people like Betty Davis and Jimmy Stewart and combining with the gay world. And I thought, oh, my God. And I just said, yes, I want to do this. We didn't have any money at that point, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it was just such a worthy piece of history that hasn't been told. I mean, yes, we do cover some things that have been covered, but from a whole new perspective, I think. Um, but when you sit down and you start to uh, work on this film, uh, even though you've been reading and you've been studying the history of this, did you have in your mind a, a narrative that you wanted to tell? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like any project like this, uh, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, uh, when did it begin to morph into something different from what you originally mm-hmm. set out to do? Well, in a way, the history it covers writes itself. I mean, we go through the 70s, the excitement, you know, the gay revolution, the disco, you know, people were starting to, you know, say, we're gay, we're here. And then there's the 80s, and we all know what happened then. So it, it has this incredible arc and structure uh, and, you know, people who watch it, 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 it's the gamut of emotions. You go from so much fun and then to uh, literally, you know, going through a, a tearful session of oh, absolutely. loss. I mean, that is a big part of the movie. It's a big part of Studio One um, is, you know, all of the people we lost. And John Duran, who was the, uh, was the mayor of West Hollywood and was on city council, and he's running again, vote for John. Uh, he, you know, he, the, the small little area that is now West Hollywood, it wasn't even a city when Studio One was built, lost over 10,000 people uh, over that period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's a tiny little area. Uh, so it's like a lost generation, essentially. And oh, the horrible. people were connected to that building. You know, it's just an ugly, eyesore building. But what it represented meant so much to people. And they started coming out. Gary Mortimer was the very first bartender there uh, in the back lot. And he's a part of the film. Michael Koff was the front bartender who was like a star. Um, Ron Hamill. uh, Yeah. And so where was I? Sorry, well, I lost my train of thought. No, I want to go back. Oh, to, yeah. Let, let me go ahead. So that was sort of what we did. And, and before the event on November 19th, we had access to the building, which had become a, a straight kind of hip hop stripper club. So it's like the total opposite of what Studio One was. But the developer let us have the building, uh, despite the owner or the leaser being a, a Tony Montana. Anyway, I, I shouldn't say that on here. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it was it was difficult, but we filmed 
for the last time, you know, in that space where everything happened with Melissa Rivers uh, talking about Joan and her mom and how she was really the first person to step up and despite death threats, uh, have the first AIDS fundraiser right there. You know, Elizabeth Taylor gets all the credit, but Joan Rivers was the first. And this movie is going to correct that. Um, so eventually, after we filmed the, the initial pieces, you know, I, I had to find some way of kind of tying everything together in, in, in the present day. And, and so the, the, the destruction of the building and the, and the de new development and the people wanting to save it in some way to save the building or just to save their memories became kind of what frames this movie together. Um, and I think this movie actually is, uh, even though the building may not be there, although the, the plan is to reconstruct the building and make it a part of the development. But what's really important is that the memories and this history is preserved through our film. So, You know, there's an old expression that you can never go home again. Uh, do you think that even with this being brought back, that that feel could ever be brought back? Probably not. I mean, I think it, it was in a way that night when we reunited, it was, it was incredible. I mean, there were over a thousand people in a place that had a maximum capacity of 200, I think something like that, 200. Uh, so it was overcrowded, but they were there and they wanted to be there. And the passion was amazing. And I haven't mentioned Bruce Blanche. He's oh. <laughs> a big part of this movie. I'm yes. so in debt to him uh, for, for really becoming a major role in uh, um, and his brilliance about that era and those people, you know, I mean, he wrote Can't Stop the Music, one of the 20 yes. versions of it. Yes. Uh, and he knows everybody and worked with Bet there and uh, had a thing for Scott Ford. So, he, you know, he is Studio One. Um, and he's a great guy. I love his words. He's a great guy. Um, he's a mensch. I want to go back um, also uh, to uh, Cheetah, and and that's going to bring us to our next clip. That uh, okay. this is going to be a, an interesting tie-in. But Cheetah, uh, you mentioned all these stars that came in, um, and this was at a time uh, when uh, there was still this was pre-AIDS, uh, but uh, there was still the stigma, as you mentioned, with the death threats that Joan Rivers received um, of associating with homosexuals, uh, not gays, homosexuals, uh, right. as it was being in the news. That's how it was reported. Um, right. But um, with someone like Cheetah Rivera coming along and major, major stars walking through those doors for mm -hmm. the first time and not walking through the back door, but walking through, uh, do you think uh, that that began to legitimize uh, this community? Well, that's what I feel. Um, I mean, that's what I hope the movie shows is that uh, by integrating, you know, the Hollywood community, straight Hollywood community, supposedly, and the gay community, because in, in the early days, they literally had to walk through the disco to get to the back lot. And then later they built staircase separately. Um, but but in the, you know, the cheetah days, uh, they had to go through this dance hall. Dance hall. Wasn't that great how cheetah? It's this great dance hall. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah uh, so, so in my mind, it was like seeing, you know, they're, they're seeing where people were fun uh, and 
they then went and made their art, their TV and films with that in, in mind, you know, it changed them. And then they broadcasted that out through their art in, mm -hmm. into the world. I mean, that's how I feel. I, maybe that's going a little over the top with it, that the importance of it, but I, I believe that. No, that I think it's very important. And I want to talk about this next clip that we're going to show that I love this segment and I can't wait to see the bigger segment. Um, and that's Betty Davis. Yes, and I got to direct Davis. a movie with Betty Davis in it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Betty Davis coming here. Um, she's become a gay icon, but at the time that this took place, did she have that status? Uh, well, yeah, yes, I would say absolutely. Yeah, maybe more so. I, oh no, yeah. go ahead. Maybe more so. I mean, I was still a kid, you know, in in Peoria. Uh, but it was, you know, they had a lot of things uh, that went out. And before we show that, I mean, they, they had uh, the, the uh, Tommy premiere that was live on ABC TV. Yeah. So what introduces some of these segments is a little animation of a kid watching that TV that I showed you the photo of. That's me watching Studio One coming through the TV to me in Peoria and me then dreaming that I'm going to go there someday. <laughs> You're telling my story, Mark. <laughs> so hold on one second. Here's the video. I should set the, the clip up. Uh, Alan Eichler was a producer. I'm, I'm so glad we, we hooked up together. Um, and what's not in the clip, uh, Betty Davis was being honored by the AFI in 1978, the AFI tribute. And uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald, of course, uh, starred with Betty in, in um, Dark Victory. And Alan uh, arranged, since Geraldine lived in New York, arranged for her to uh, book her, her nightclub act at the Backlot a week after Betty Davis's event, because she was coming out here anyway. And, um, <clears throat> and then uh, Geraldine asked Betty, well, would you introduce me? And she agreed to introduce her. Uh, which was like a you know, thrill that Betty Davis was going to introduce Geraldine. Um, and the rest, I think, is in the clip. Okay. This is a great clip. I love this section. You'll see the stairs, too. Here. Yes. Love, this is wonderful. Going up to the back lot, the steps were lined by, I think, every gay person in West Hollywood who wanted to see Betty Davis. This throng of gay people cheering and screaming. Betty Davis's party that night included Olivia de Havilland, Paul Henried, I invited Gregory Peck and I got a phone call from his wife if it was possible to bring their friends as well. And the friends turned out to be Kirk Douglas and Roger Moore. Charles Pierce came that night and that was the first time he ever actually met her face to face. And it was like the thrill of his life to meet Betty Davis. So that night when I went up to Betty Davis to explain what we were doing, she acted like it was the first time she heard that she was gonna be introducing Geraldine. And she was angry. She was kind of stern, and I wasn't going to argue with her. So I said, well, that's all right. You know, and I started to walk away. And that's when she stopped me, and she said, does Geraldine expect me to do it? And I said, yes. And she said, well, then I'll do it. Once she agreed to do it, she was fine. And in the picture, you can see I'm directing her. I'm directing Betty Davis on what we're going to be doing. And she did a nice introduction. She got a lot of applause and she went back to her table and then Geraldine started her show. And when it was over, Betty Davis jumped back on the stage, which was not planned. And she said to Geraldine, what a world you've given us tonight. 
it was amazing. Uh, and then, of course, is Alan Eichler, a good friend. So it was good okay. to, to see him on this. He has well. so many stories, uh, yeah, yes. incredible stories. But to have his story along with the real photographs of that backlot show in the 70s, because uh, for so long working on this, I thought I'm not really going to get any you know, photos or archival material from that era, which was the great era. It, it kind of went down a little bit in the 80s, slowly started to you know, slip from the, the golden age. Um, so that was an incredible find. And we now experience what it was like to be there with Betty Davis. It, it's amazing. Uh, yeah. it, it's like that segment from A Star is Born where they reconstructed those uh, clips. <laughs> so yeah, right. you get a chance to be there that night. Yeah. Uh, this um, film is a 90 minute film, but I'm, I can only imagine the amount of footage that you have mm. beyond that 90 minutes. How do you whittle it down to 90 minutes? Well, the original cut was two and a half hours, and that still didn't include everything that I have. Uh, it, it wasn't easy, but, uh, you know, I, I've been working with some great producers who I want to give credit to, Stephen Israel and Michael Alden and Michael Roth and uh, and our angel... Uh, Gary Carno and Polly Perrette and Andrews Clark. Uh, I just wanted to mention that. Uh, and uh, they, uh, I mean, Michael Alden and Stephen Israel have really been helpful in, in uh, kind of focusing the, the narrative. And basically, you know, I wanted to go off on, of course, so many stories, but you have to stay focused on what, you know, specifically relates to the story we're telling. And it was it was hard, but after two and a half years, it became less hard to remove some things. Um, but I th I think the essence of everything is is still there. And you know, this is the era of of series for streaming services. I, I have enough uh, to make at least six episodes. You know, the movie would be four, and we have at least two more episodes from stuff uh, I had to cut. We could expand on, um, you know, all, all kinds of things. I, it could be a huge, uh, never-ending narrative series. So, is well. the film itself completed now? Yeah, actually, uh, literally last night I got the Sundance uh, version which is as close as we could come to being finished. It's still considered work in progress. We're working on the color and we need to, you know, fix the mix a bit uh, and do a few more things, but the story is there. It's locked, you know, it's not, it's not going to change. Um, and so we, that's our first submission in the Sundance. Um, they get 5,000 premiere submissions every year and they select a hundred. I've submitted every single film and I, I call it the rite of passage okay. pass all the time. But in this case, I really think we have a shot. Ah, oh, I certainly do. And if we don't, it'll find its home. I know it so, will. it'll be in every gay festival. For sure. When you began this project, um, I, it was pre COVID. Yeah. So how did COVID affect oh. your moving forward with this project? Oh, it was, you know, it, it just stopped. Everything stopped. Um, the the event was uh, and the first interviews were in 2019 November, and we filmed another little piece around January February, and then March was basically when everything 2020 everything wow, shut down. Everything shut West down. Hollywood shut down. You know, it was a ghost town. Uh, and since most of our people are of a certain age, they're older. Uh, obviously, we 
had to stop interviewing people, even though I had so many people still to interview. Um, so we lost, you know, during lockdown, we couldn't do anything. Uh, but the great thing was that I had something to work on during that lockdown. So I just went in and had no distractions. And I just kind of put together the, the very first, which is so different now, but from all of this footage I had put together the very first cut and, and a trailer. Uh, so it was a great thing in the lockdown for me. Because usually I'm, you know, I got this, I have this job and this job and it's like, I, I had six months of, of just focus. Um, now, and then slowly, yeah, but, And did you get all the funding that you needed for the film? Uh, it was, it was little bits and pieces. Uh, my brother came to the rescue to help me out. Um, fortunately, I, I own my own equipment and stuff. So for the most part, I could do interviews, single interviews on my own. I started doing that, like Thelma Houston and uh, uh, Charlotte Crossley. Charlotte uh, Crossley. Oh my God, do I love her? Charlotte, <laughs> oh, and, I have talked about doing a master class. So if yeah. everyone's interested, we're gonna uh, put one together. You know, so I love, I absolutely love that woman. I could do fifty interviews with her, and not not gonna. Like, she's so wonderful. She's been so great for our film. Um, and I, I have to mention that we have an original song for the closing credits uh, that was written by Mitch Kaplan and Brian Lane Green. They actually wrote a musical that was never uh, developed like 20 years ago. And they, one of the songs is called If I Travel Up and uh, Charlotte Crossley and uh, Michael, sorry, what is his name? Orland? Uh, Michael Thomas Grant, oh, okay. who is in uh, uh, Zoe's something. Anyway, he, he's the male vocalist and and Charlotte brought in uh, her girlfriends for the backups and they put together this incredible song for the closing credits. If I travel up, it's about those stairs that everyone remembers. Uh, and that's going to be its own thing. I mean, we're going to also do another song that they wrote for it. That's more about the disco. This was more about the back lot. Um, and of course the, uh, the metaphor of the stairs is not only, you know, you get to the top, but uh Yeah, it changes people. Once you got into that place, you were safe, you were free, you felt safe and free. It was like stepping out of the world that was so so dark and hostile to gay people. And you could be yourself, whip your shirt off and you know, be yourself. You have just, you practically read my mind with what my next question was gonna be. I was gonna ask how this film changed you. Mm. Well, uh, Well, I mean, I've learned along with, you know, making the film, I, I had no idea what happened in the 70s, you know. So I have a greater appreciation for for what people before me went through to get to the place we are. I think the current generation kind of doesn't have a clue no. what, what we went through. And I, of course, I came of age in the 80s, literally, uh -huh. I saw the first AIDS uh, news report. You and I both. I, just right yeah. came out so it was with me from day one um and so it's been a bit of ptsd and everybody who lived through that era has ptsd and so we've been going through it my husband steve and i uh have been living in that era over and over again and it's been it's been difficult but 
it's an important thing to to uh, remind people and to educate people who have no idea because they're too busy on TikTok or whatever. You know, I mean, I hope that some young people will actually sit down. Well, and, and I, I wanted to ask you, I knowing very much about the history here in New York um, with Stonewall and uh, the beginning. I mean, even now, uh, the Heritage of Pride, they don't call uh, the march a parade. Uh, they said they refuse to call it a parade until there's equality for all people, which I think mm. uh, is uh, hopefully in our lifetime. Uh, mm. But going back to when this, uh, when they first was, um, was it legal to be gay in LA at that time when they opened their doors? Uh, because I know that in some areas in New York, uh, you could lose your job. You could, uh, I mean, if, if somebody saw you walking into sure. this yeah. venue, um, that's all. You could lose your job. You could lose everything. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the reason that all of the gay bars came up in this community, West Hollywood now, it's called, it wasn't back then, uh, because it was an unincorporated area outside of the jurisdiction of the LAPD. Uh, so the sheriff, the county sheriffs, they were much more easy on gay people, lenient, if you will. But that's why West Hollywood is there, because it wasn't a part of the LAPD. So um, so it was somewhat safer, but, but sure. Uh, homophobia was rampant. Police brutality, you know, just, it was rampant. Um, we have a story, Harlan Bowl. Do you know Harlan uh, Bowl? Uh, do was, I know Harlan Bowl? Yeah. <laughs> we speak uh, every day almost. <laughs> But before I forget, oh, uh, where's uh, that's uh, yeah, uh, that's Carol Danny, Carol Channing, yeah, yes, Danny, <laughs> that's how I met Harlan, anyway. Well, it was a thrill in my life, but uh, but Harlan, I, I don't want to give it away, he has an incredible story of, of uh, that kind of addresses that. Yeah, that, um, no, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I don't want to give it away. It'll be a spoiler, uh, his story. But it, it's one of the most powerful stories in the movie wow. uh, when he went there as a young man and what happened. And I don't want to give it away. Well, I'll tell, I'm going to tell you. Gotta you watch the movie. Well, Harlan, uh, Carol and I were very close friends. And uh, so uh, I hope that I won't get the glare oh. for this. Uh, here we are. There's Harlan and Carol and oh. Harry and myself. So um, that was a thrill when I got to meet her. Uh, you know, <laughs> it was close to the end. She was wheeled into one of her homes in Palm Springs. But boy, when the lights went on, it was like she's turned into Carol. She was kind of slumped over a little bit. And then the lights went on and there she is telling these stories that she's told. Of, it was like a dream when I was doing it. She was my that, husband too. Well, uh, you have been a dream. I, I mean, I, I cannot wait for this film. Uh, again, Rosa Puzo, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I mean, she, from the very beginning, said, you got to have him on the show. you got to have him on the show. I and, uh, and I, of course, I knew uh, that Celeste had done it, and I knew that Julie Budd uh, had worked on it, and uh, Cheetah. And, but getting to know you, uh, it, it's just been a dream to have you on the show tonight. So oh, I want to begin by so thanking fun. you. And, but don't go to work for a moment because I want to say my closing remarks and then I'm going to have you have the final word tonight. Uh, but I want to thank everyone for being here tonight. Uh, wow, what a history. Um, like I said um, at the beginning of tonight's show, uh, I was 18 years old when I came to New York. Um, 
believe it or not, maybe a big surprise to everybody. I wasn't, the, the idea of being gay and being out and everything was not a part of my sphere of thinking. Uh, so by the time that came along and I became comfortable being who I was and I started going to clubs and everything, front page headlines every day was AIDS. And uh, it scared me and uh, it kept me in check. And it probably saved my life as well that I did not know more about myself when I first came to New York in 1979. Um, but I think back to that era and, and I'm gonna get emotional. I see those guys um, on the dance floor um, having the time of their life, just being their authentic selves, having a great time among the people that they loved and uh, not knowing what was ahead for any of them. And I lost so many friends during that time frame. But that music, and uh, like I said to you before we started today, um, I went on to my device, I won't mention her name, uh, and I asked for a playlist of the top 10 disco songs from 1974 in preparation, because uh, I wanted to go back and hear in my mind what was being uh, heard on the dance floors uh, mm -hmm. as people were going into uh, Studio One. And uh, so thank God for you, Mark, and for everyone connected with this film for coming together and taking us back. Uh, Howard Tucker says, who says you can't go home again? You're gonna take us home again. And you're gonna allow all of us the chance uh, to experience this film. I want to let everyone know that I will have uh, as many details, Mark and I will stay in touch. And as developments come up with the film, I will be putting it out there, letting you all know about it. And maybe we can get a, a, a group and go together to see it. I would really love that. Uh, and, uh, or you'll come to New York and we'll do a talk back together. I would love that as well. So I'm sure we'll be uh, screening in New York next year. So we'll definitely have a party I, then for sure. I yeah, I, I'm it's I can't wait, but uh, I you know I um I always choose a word each day, and the word that I chose today was wisdom, uh, because if we take the time to remember where we've come from, mm -hmm. it will help us to know where we're going. And uh, so again, thank you all for being here tonight. If this was your first time here, I hope it will not be your last. Uh, please, please, please leave a comment uh, on my YouTube channel after the show. Let us know what you think about this show. Share this with your friends. Tell others about this uh, and spread the word. Uh, advertising is great and thank you to my sponsors, uh, but word of mouth is even better. Not only for me, but for Mark. Let other people know about this project because uh, it's very important that we get the word out uh, as it's going to be the hit of the Sundance Festival. I know that. Uh, and, uh, and beyond. Uh, so I also end every show by telling me I want to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Go to your Facebook friends list and reach out to the fifth name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call. And let that person know what they mean to you. Mark and I know all too well how quickly those that we loved were no longer there. 
when we have the moment to do that, it's important that we do that. So reach out with those phone calls. As my dear friend, Sean Moniger always says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. And I always say, if you're going to go out in a boat, make sure you bring a skipper along. So Mark, I'm going to leave the screen and you've got the final word. Anything you want to say about anything that we talked about tonight that you want to build upon? Anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had? Or just any final message you want to leave everyone with tonight? I thank you for the gifts that you've given to the world and that you will continue to give. Thank you oh, for thank this you. project. It's all Richard, yours. Wonderful. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you, Richard. It's been a joy. Uh, yeah, I mean, we have to, as difficult as it is, we have to remember where we came from uh, and all the people that we lost. And, uh, you know, it's not easy uh, to go to those places, but keeping their memories alive is important. Um, I hope you can be connected to our film. Uh, you can, we still do need to actually raise money to pay for our music licensing. So if you'd like to make a donation, we have uh, a, a film collaborative website that you can go to and make a donation and also a GoFundMe website. And we're planning to have some donor screenings. If you'd like to be involved, I'm sure we can get connected that way. Uh, my website is my name, marksaltarelli.com, if you'd like to check it out. And thank you so much, Richard. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.